If tomorrow you got a letter in the mail from a law firm on a very official looking law firm stationery, and the letter says that some distant relative you don't even know has left you millions of dollars, you would be highly skeptical, wouldn't you? I mean, there are more scams today than ever before, right? You would be highly skeptical. But would you throw the letter in the trash? I bet you wouldn't. I bet you wouldn't. Why? Because the offer is too great to not at least look into it. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is exactly like that. You can be really, really skeptical about it, and that's understandable. Dead people stay dead. So the Christian message of a resurrection, it's hard to believe. I get it. But what the resurrection offers is so extravagant, so unbelievable, so mind-blowing that it's worth exploring in detail just to make sure you don't want to just throw it away. If Jesus is risen, then it changes everything. You see, what the resurrection offers is not some vague, pie-in-the-sky, immaterial, ethereal afterlife of some sort. No. The resurrection of Jesus is a remarkable package. It's remarkable. So let's take a look at what it is and what it offers us together. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's okay. We've got the verses on the screen. John chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 1 through 20. Verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they have put him. 
At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, where have you put him? Tell me where you put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around, turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascended to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening, that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. This is God's word. This passage shows us three amazing things about the resurrection. Number one in your outline. The resurrection is surprisingly inspectable. Inspectable. I'm not sure if that's a word, but I'm going to use it anyway. The resurrection is surprisingly inspectable. What do I mean? So Mary Magdalene finds the tomb empty. She runs and tells John. Then Peter and the other disciples start running toward the tomb. John gets there first, and he starts looking around. Peter then gets there. In verse 6, it says that Peter, quote, saw the strips of linen. He saw the strips of linen and the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' body. Now, what's really interesting is that the Greek word here for saw is not the typical Greek word used for seeing. It's not the typical word for saw. It's actually the Greek word theoreo. Theoreo, which is where we get our word theorize. It's a word that means to observe something intently, looking for an explanation. And we see Peter doing exactly that in this text, don't we? Peter is furiously thinking and inspecting the tomb. He's probably thinking to himself, okay, so if grave robbers took the body, why did they leave the expensive spices? Hmm. On the other hand, if the other disciples stole the body, why would they dishonor Jesus by taking him naked? His clothes are still here. The linen is still here. So Peter is thinking, he's pondering, he's theorizing as to what had happened. What's the point I'm making? The point is this. Many people today think that if you're a Christian, then that means you just blindly believe in Jesus without any evidence. But that's not true. That's not true. As we're seeing now in the text, and as we'll see in a minute, it took a great amount of evidence for Jesus' followers to believe he had risen from the dead. Christianity is not blind faith. It's not. 
You don't have to check your brain at the door as you walk into church. Did we ask you for your brains when you came in? Now, out of all the other world religions, Christianity is completely unique in this way. Completely unique. You see, all other religions are based on spiritual ideas, you know, some moral truths. But those things are not inspectable, so to speak. Essentially, it's blind faith that you must have. Christianity, on the other hand, is based upon historical events. Historical people and historical events. Specifically, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, unlike all the other religions, Christianity is falsifiable. You can disprove it. You can disprove it. If you could show that Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we can have a Bible-burning party right out here in the parking lot. The whole thing is worthless if Jesus did not die and Jesus did not rise. The whole thing's worthless. You could throw it in the garbage and never think about Christianity again. But, surprisingly, there are multiple historical evidences that we can investigate and we can come to an informed decision about. You might say, well, yeah, so the disciples had tangible evidence. I get that. You know, they had the tomb, the linen, the whole nine. They could reason about those things. They could investigate it. But what do we have to investigate? Well, I'm glad you asked. We actually have an astonishing amount of historical evidence, as Billy Graham just said in the video before the sermon an astonishing amount of historical evidence we can inspect. Now, I don't have time to go through all of that today, and so I'm just going to give you one. I'll give you one line of evidence that's right here in the text that we read. But even though it's just one line of evidence, it is awfully compelling. It's Mary Magdalene herself. She is the line of evidence. What do I mean? Well, the second century Greek philosopher Celsus hated Christianity. He hated Christianity. And he, want, he wrote one of the first lengthy major attacks against the Christian faith. And one of his main arguments against Christianity was Mary Magdalene. And this is what he wrote in his attack. One of, one of his main arguments. Quote, how can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of an hysterical female? End quote. Now, why would he write that? Why would he present that as a philosophical argument against Christianity? Well, because Celsus lived in a time in history where women's status in, in society was astonishingly low. Women were considered to be subhuman, virtually. In fact, the testimony of a woman was inadmissible in a court of law. Women were considered hysterical and untrustworthy. But then we come to the Gospels. 
And all four Gospels say that it was women who first discovered the empty tomb of Jesus. And it was women who first spread the news. All four Gospels. Years ago, I was in a coffee shop in Kentucky, and I had on uh, my church's t-shirt. And I had this Hindu gentleman kind of randomly come up to me and put me on blast. I mean, he just started firing questions at me. He comes up to me out of the blue, and he says, hey, how do you know the Gospels weren't written by monks hundreds of years after the fact? I said, well, I have a lot of reasons why I am certain that monks did not write the Gospels. But one of the main reasons I know monks didn't invent this story is because monks would have never given women such a prominent role, ever. At this point in history, if you're inventing a religion... Inventing a story, and you're trying to get your religion off the ground, you would have to be an idiot to include women's testimony like this. It would never work. Why? Because no one would ever believe the testimony of women. They would not believe it. You wouldn't have Mary Magdalene at the tomb. You'd have John, you'd have Peter, you'd have some other male there, and he would be the one to discover, and then he would be the one to go spread the news. You would not put women at the tomb. Okay, so, why then are women's testimonies included in the gospel stories? Well, logic dictates that it's because it actually happened that way. Women really did discover the empty tomb, and women really did spread the news. Now, there's a lot more evidence we could go into for the resurrection. And so if you're here today and, you know, maybe you don't quite believe this story yet, you're like, eh, I don't know. I'm not sold. I get it. I was a skeptic for a very long time um, in my life, a very hardened atheist, actually. So I get it. Hey, I get it. It's hard to believe. Dead people stay dead most of the time. So uh, I get it, Uh, but hey, if you're interested in just learning more uh, about the resurrection, about the historical facts surrounding uh, the resurrection, um, I'm going to give you a free book today. After the service, there's actually a stack of them uh, right there uh, by the door. It's sitting right next to um, the the money basket there, the offering basket. Uh, So just grab one on your way out. Okay, this is written by Dr. William Lane Craig. Uh, and I, I believe he is the world's leading expert on the historical evidence for the resurrection. So it's on me today, on your way out. If you'd like to learn more about this, uh, just grab one of those books on your way out today. So that's number one. The resurrection is surprisingly investigatable. And number two, the resurrection is intensely merciful. Intensely merciful. What do I mean? Just look at what Jesus does with Mary. Look at what he does. Look how gentle he is with her. One commentator points out that despite Mary's deep love for Jesus, she has a very small view of Jesus. 
a very small view. You see, she was looking for a dead Jesus. She was looking for a dead Jesus. She was looking for a Jesus who fit into her worldview. And her worldview included the assumption that dead people stay dead. And so Jesus has to reveal himself to Mary. One commentator says this, he says, quote, Jesus wanted Mary to recognize that grand as her devotion was to him, her estimate of him was, so, was still far too small, end quote. But notice how Jesus does this. He doesn't return and reveal himself like Superman returns. Y'all seen Superman returns? I'm the only one? Okay. When Superman returns, I'll just, spoiler alert here. Um, spoiler alert, when Superman returns, he returns by saving a jetliner in the middle of a stadium of cheering people and on TV with millions watching. That's how Superman returns. Exactly. That's how, exactly. Perfect. That's how superheroes return. But that's not how Jesus returns. Jesus has conquered death, hell, and the grave. And how does he return? He returns simply to a grieving Mary. No TV. No Twitter. Jesus doesn't trend. No stadium full of cheering crowds. He just simply returns to his grieving friend. And says, Mary, why are you crying? It's me. I'm here. Behold the tenderness of Jesus. He has just conquered hell. And he is still so gentle and concerned for his friend. And how Jesus is with Mary is how he is with all of us. That's how he is with all of us. Her story is our story. Even though Mary is a devoted and admirable character in the Gospels, sure, she never would have found Jesus had Jesus not found her first. You see, like Mary, our worldview has no room for a risen Jesus. There's no room for it. And we will never see him unless he helps us. He has to help us. And thankfully, he does. He comes gently, but he comes. And what does that show us? It shows us that God saves by grace, by sheer mercy. And that is the story of the entire Bible, that our God saves by grace. You don't clean your life up. Get your act right and then find your way to Jesus. You'll never, ever do it. Ever. You'll never find him. That's not the way to get to him. No, he comes all the way to find you. In the pigsty. And he picks you up. He puts you on his shoulders and he brings you home. And he'll do the cleaning. You don't have to worry about it. You don't believe me? Well, that's because you don't know who Mary Magdalene was. 
The Gospels tell us that Mary had seven demons inside of her. Seven demons. For that to happen to her, it's likely Mary was involved in some terribly wicked things. We don't know what, but it had to be some pretty bad stuff. And demon-possessed people in those days wandered around half-naked or fully naked, talking to themselves, cutting themselves, hearing voices. They were crying out loudly in public places. They were social outcasts and usually homeless. And what did Jesus do when he met Mary? Did he say, Mary, get your act right. Mary, clean yourself up. Put on some better clothes. Start coming to church. We'll see how you do after a while and then go from there. Is that what he did? No. What did he do? He immediately called those demons out of Mary. And he pulled her up out of the darkness she was in and brought her into his glorious light. She didn't find Jesus. He found her. You didn't find Jesus either. He found you. And in our story today, we see that Jesus chose Mary, a woman of ill repute, to be the very first person to witness his resurrection and to be the very first person to be told by Jesus, go and tell others what you have seen. Who was the first preacher of the gospel in history? Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was the first preacher of the gospel. A woman and a woman of ill repute at that. Now, if you were making this story up, Mary's not the one you would choose. But she is the one Jesus chose. She is who Jesus chose. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking you're too sinful for Jesus to save you. You're just too dirty. You're too far gone. Too messed up. Listen to me. You ain't more messed up than Mary was. You ain't. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. You ain't more messed up than Mary. And Jesus comes to you right now, just exactly as he did to Mary, with intense mercy and radical tenderness. And with a gentle voice, he declares to you, all is forgiven. It's all forgiven. Take my hand, and I'll bring you into the light. Behold the mercy and grace of Jesus. Lastly, in your outline, we'll close with this. The resurrection is universally renewing. The resurrection is universally renewing. It's not enough for us to say that Jesus saves by grace. We need to see how he saves by grace. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Jesus is showing his disciples his hands and his feet. Why? 
Why is he showing them that? Because three days earlier, his hands and his feet had spikes driven through them. Today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Of course we do. But there's no resurrection without a crucifixion. The reason Jesus could pull Mary out of the hell she was in was because he was going to trade places with Mary. He was going to pull her out of the darkness and put himself into the darkness. Jesus took the wrath of God for our sin so that we could get the blessings of God. Jesus took suffering from God so that we could get peace from God. He is our great rescuer, our great substitute, our great savior. But looking at verse 20, this used to bother me when I was younger. Looking at verse 20, have you ever wondered why Jesus still has the scars after his resurrection? Why does he still have the scars? You would think those would be gone, right? Genesis tells us that God made the world good. Good, a literal paradise. But human rebellion and sin has cursed the entire globe. I mean, just think of the constants of human history. Domestic abuse, racism, slavery, war, genocide, and so on and so on. Yet according to Scripture, our problems don't even stop there. Creation itself is in a chaotic state due to sin. We see and feel this chaos and earthquakes and tsunamis and cancer and coronaviruses. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's way of reversing the effects of the curse. The key word here is reversing. Reversing. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the final resurrection. It's a foretaste of what is to come. He's the first fruits. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means if Jesus is resurrected, then we will be resurrected too when he returns. But that's not all. When Jesus returns at his second coming, everything will be resurrected. Everything. It's not just you and me. All things will be made new. All things. Think of it this way. You remember the horrific video footage of the 2011 tsunami that hit Japan? I want you to picture right now that 100-foot wall of water rolling over the tops of villages, consuming everything in its path. Houses, schools, hospitals, cars, children, the elderly, 
sheer and unrestrained devastation. Now, imagine the second coming of Jesus. Is that tape played in reverse? Played in reverse. The second coming of Christ is God undoing all of that devastation and destruction, turning it all back, and not only restoring everything, but making things even better than they were before. The Bible's word for this is renewal. It's better than restoration. He's not just going to restore what we've lost. Yes, he is going to do that. But then he's going to make everything better than it was before. He's not going to restore all things. He's going to renew all things. To make all things brand new. That's what resurrection means. This great reversal is not just for Japan. It's for all of creation. For all time. When Jesus comes back. It's all going back. That's what the resurrection means. You see, Jesus still has the scars because he still has the same body as he had before. It's not a new body. It's a renewed body. And he's just the foretaste. He's just the first fruits. For when all creation... Is made new, not restored, renewed. The resurrection then is the solution to all our problems. It's the answer to all our questions. It's the antidote to all our diseases. It's the resolution to all our conflicts. The resurrection means that all our tears, all our pains, all our failures, all our tarnished relationships won't be forgotten. They'll be remembered, yet renewed and glorified. Because of the resurrection, all sad things will come untrue. Both of my parents died recently. And I didn't have a great relationship with either of them. And I'm often tempted to live with shame and regret over that. But don't you see the hope that this day brings? Do you see the hope of the resurrection? If Jesus really did pay for my sins... And really did rise from the dead. Then when I see my parents again. I will see that the blood of Jesus has not only washed away my parents sins and my sins. But his blood is also completely redeemed and renewed and glorified our relationship. When I see them again there will be no shame. There will be no regret. It's because of the resurrection. Jesus will personally wipe every tear away from our eyes. And in his presence, his sweet presence, that place of freedom, we'll, st we'll still have our scars too. We'll still have our scars. 
but we won't have to hide them. We won't. We'll be able to freely show each other our scars, just as Jesus did with his friends. We'll show each other our scars, and they won't cause us to regret. They'll cause us to worship. They'll cause us to worship the Lamb who died and rose again to make all things new.